If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Uh, we're going to be working primarily out of the Gospel of John this morning. We'll, we'll bounce around a little bit, but primarily we're going to be using John chapter 13 as the framework for everything we're going to do this morning. Uh, we've spent the past three weeks here working through a series that we've called The Community of the King. And, and we've really been, we've been looking at the reality of how from the very beginning God created, how when He formed man and woman, uh, how He built us to live not only in community with him, but in community together. If you remember, it was God who looked on Adam's situation, who looked and saw him and said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then we saw in Genesis 3, where when man fell into sin, not only did that bring the fracture of our relationship with God, but it brought the breaking of the relationship between the man and the woman. And just like a typical man in the garden, When confronted with his sin, sorry men, but Adam doesn't own his sin. He doesn't own that. He he blames the woman. He blames the woman. When confronted with his sin, he doesn't own it. He blames the woman. And then effectively, he blames God by saying, this woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. You gave me her, she gave me the fruit. It really, this is on you. I mean, this is, he literally blames every, every conscious being in the universe at that, point, at that point other than himself. It's God, it's Adam, it's Eve, and he blames everybody but himself. He doesn't want to own that. The effects of sin spread very quickly. We spent some time looking at the church as the body of Christ. We talked about the unity that we, um, as diverse as we are, as diverse as we are in terms of background, in terms of talents, in terms of ambitions, in terms of style, in terms of gender, age, We talked about how we come together and form the body of Christ, both here locally and everywhere. How we join with the saints across the globe today in celebrating the one risen Savior. We talked about the balance that exists within the body because of that diversity. Because we aren't all wired exactly the same. And we discussed the beauty of intergenerational interaction. About those who have come through life, who are, I don't want to make eye contact with anybody, I don't want you to think I'm calling you out, but who are more seasoned in life, how those people, is that, <laughs> how those people have, who have gained wisdom, who've gained insight, who've gained experience, have knowledge, how they ought to share that with those coming behind them. Last week, Mark preached on, on the, the voice of the community, about how we speak to one another, how we encourage one another, how we embrace one another, and how we talk, and ultimately, how we come together and worship together one another with one voice. Today we're looking at what we've called the hands of the community. We're looking at what the community does. We're looking at the reality that the Christian, that the member of the family of faith does not live in a vacuum, does not live on an island unto himself, but, but lives together. It belongs to the body of believers with Christ as the head. I was reading this week, and Paul Tripp uh, wrote in his book, uh, Dangerous Calling. He writes, autonomous Christianity never works because our spiritual life was designed by God to be a community project. We're looking at that today. We're looking at that today. We're going to, be, we're going to begin by looking at the example of Jesus Christ in John chapter 13. So if you will, turn there with me now. John chapter 13. We're going to begin with verse 1. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know where we fall short. Uh, You know where we are going to have a hard time this morning understanding what you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would come and get me out of the way. That you'd come and do your work here through your Spirit. That you would open our eyes. That you would open our ears. That you would give us hearts to hear and, and see and understand. Lord, I pray that you would come and do that work amongst us now. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, To give you just a bit of context to this passage, Jesus has at this point entered into Jerusalem. He's in the last days of his earthly ministry. He's he's cleansed the temple, okay? And he's about to spend some quality time with his closest disciples. And by quality time, what I mean is that he's about to lay some stuff out there for his disciples. There is an urgency in him at this point. Um, He is about to leave his disciples, and he's trying to give them as complete a picture of what's coming as they can understand. In fact, if you take just a second, and depending on how seasoned you are and the size of the font in your Bible, the next few pages are are basically solid red text. From here through the next few chapters, it's nothing but Jesus unpacking for his disciples lesson after lesson. It's what we call the upper room discourse. It's the longest uninterrupted section of Jesus teaching his disciples that we find in the Bible. And it's full of weighty. It's full of heavy things. Within this section of Scripture alone, we find two of the I Am sayings. Jesus is going to to proclaim, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's in chapter 14. The universalists absolutely hate that one. We also see Jesus saying, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, which ought to beg us to ask how many false vines are we attaching ourselves to. That's in chapter 15. Within this section, he promises the coming of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, both to and through the disciples. And in the end, we see what's called the high priestly prayer. This section of Scripture from here through chapter 17 is just loaded with lessons and hopes and encouragements and promises for his disciples and his church. But before all of those, before all of those spoken lessons... We find our text this morning, and here we have the fourth evangelist. We have John, as is typical of his entire gospel, painting a subtle portrait of the scene for us. It's like he's inviting us to come and sit at the table with them. 
He's giving us a glimpse of a deeply personal and intimate exchange between Jesus and those closest to him as they're around the table, as they're there together. We're told that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, that he rose from supper. Now, that might not sound strange. In fact, it, it probably shouldn't sound strange at all that Jesus rose from supper, but we need to say something about the cultural implications of eating a meal together in first century Judea. Because if we're not careful, what we'll end up doing is making the mistake of contextualizing this too much into 21st century Western culture, where meals have largely become nothing more than, than a necessity by which we fill our stomachs and then move on to the next project. We are, as a culture, the most overstimulated and overentertained generation that has ever walked the face of the earth. We are the generation of, and listen, I just want to be careful here. A couple of weeks ago, Dale just picked on me about all the youth stuff as if I didn't know what a rotary phone was. I'm there. I know what that is. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, you'll make the mistake of sitting there thinking, well, that's not me because I'm not one of the young people. If you are alive today, this is you. You're in this culture. Culture doesn't wait for one individual to get on board. We're all in this together. We are in the epoch of 24-hour news channels. Not channel, channels. There are a multitude of options for you to watch 24 hours a day to find out what's happening anywhere on the planet. We are we're in the time of I actually tried to list out all the social media options I could think of, and I had a college student tell me, don't do that. There's a new one every seven minutes. You'll you'll miss one. There's more that we could even begin to name. We're the generation of people who don't have to know anything. We don't have to know anything. Equipped with an iPhone or a smartphone, whatever you've got, you don't have to know anything. You just have to know, you just have to know the steps to follow to find that information. We are basically functional cyborgs at this point. After all, why worry about knowing things? We can just Google it. The reality is that all of the distractions are taking a toll on our families. According to recent surveys, the average American family, the average American family will eat three meals together during the week. The average length of those meals is somewhere around 20 minutes, and that estimate's on the high end. If you do the math, and I'm not great at math, but we're talking about an average of one hour, one hour per week, of families, immediate families, eating together. It was not uncommon in the time of Jesus for one meal to last for hours. Without all the distractions of our contemporary life, people entered into these things called conversations. Or they talked about life. Like they shared experiences. And even practiced the lost art of listening. And all that this tells us is that we are losing something that humans have held as sacred for centuries, time together at the table. And as we consider this scene in John 13, as we look at this point in the story of Jesus' ministry, where all the disciples, all 12 of them, are together with their dear friend, their teacher, their leader, they are sharing a meal together. It would not have been uncomfortable or awkward for them. It wouldn't have been. They had done this before. They knew how the conversation would naturally flow. They knew who would be the one chewing with their mouth open. Like, they knew that. They knew that they were going to have to listen to that. They knew who was going to be the first to finish. They knew who was going to be the last to finish. They'd eaten a lot of meals together. They probably, listen, just based on past experience, they probably expected Jesus to throw out a couple of parables. You know, that's just kind of what he does at dinner table. Just throw out a couple of parables for him. 
But they didn't expect him to do what he did next. Look back at verse 4. Get verse 4 with me. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay, so this was new. This was, they hadn't seen this one before. This was different. This is nothing that they expected at all. Can you, I need you for just a second, can you put yourself at the table with them? Can you imagine being there? Can you feel the sort of angst that's happening in this moment? Can you imagine the tension in the room? John is offering us this firsthand commentary. He was there of what's taking place, and it almost reads like a play-by-play of what's happening. And he's just inviting us to come and be a part of it. Imagine that feeling. You've felt that before. You're sort, of, you're sort of teetering on the brink of just outright confusion, okay? And pure shock over what's happening in front of you. It's striking at something in your core. You, you've been around the table with these men before. You know how this is supposed to work and this is not normal. And more than that, in your mind, it's not right. And based on what we see in the text, the soundtrack to this whole scene was nothing more than the sound of silence. Jesus didn't ask permission. He didn't explain what was about to happen from this. Just what we read here, he didn't say a word. And I just see, maybe it's wrong to envision this, I just see 12 men sitting there completely dumbfounded by what's happening in front of them, by what's taking place not only around them, but to them. The first point I want to make today is that there's no such thing as a purely physical act of service. As we are not just physical creatures, there is really nothing in human life that is purely physical. All acts of service are spiritual in nature. All acts of service. There is no such thing as a purely physical act. If you pat somebody on the back, there is more happening there than just your hand touching a shoulder. And we all know that to be true. There's a contrast that's taking place here too. It's a contrast of motivations. It's a contrast between Judas, who John is quick to point out, has already made arrangements to betray Jesus into the hands of the Jews, who is moved to do so, we're told, by the devil, who always seeks personal advancement at the expense of others. And then there's Jesus, who's moved by by his divine love for his disciples, his knowledge of God the Father, and his mission to bring new sons to glory. What we have before us is a profound example of the humility of Christ in action. The painfully obvious reality is that foot washing was a task reserved for the lowliest of servants. Not just those on the bottom rung, those who were not allowed to get onto the ladder. This was who washed the feet. D.A. Carson points out in his commentary on this passage, some Jews insisted that Jewish slaves should not be required to wash the feet of others. This job should be reserved for Gentile slaves or for women and children and pupils. Gentile slaves, women and children and pupils. Culturally, it was a task that divided races, that separated genders, that created divisions among the generations, and was used to humble the students of some of the more prolific rabbis. But something different is happening here. This was more than just a physical act of service. This was an acted parable that spoke to something in their souls. Jesus was taking a task that was typically used to divide people and making it a task to bring unity to his people. He's teaching them a lesson. 
and giving them an example. And so he's doing the same thing for us. The way of the Lord is not the natural way of man. And just to show that this has been true throughout the ages, in Luke 22, we see a parallel account of this passage. At that meal, as Luke records it, the disciples sitting together at the table began to argue amongst themselves as to who was the greatest, as to which one of them would be more highly regarded. Now, I have little doubt that many of you have sat at tables like that before. That you've sat at tables where there was little more happening than, than jockeying for position. Where people take turns giving their credentials for the role of apex person at the table. Sometimes we use our family situation to, to, to establish who's the greatest at the table. One of the first things you realize after having children, uh, and so this is for a briefing, anybody who's expecting or hasn't have kids yet, this is coming for you. One of the first things you'll realize is that you've basically entered into a competitive league of child raising. All right? I'm serious. Just pay attention to the conversations within the first year of your child's life. You're going to get hit with a subtle dig of some sort. And my favorite one is this. Oh, he isn't walking yet? Gosh, you're so lucky. Oh, it's 12 months? Yeah, he's not walking yet? Oh, you're so lucky. My, my kids start walking at nine months. You're so lucky you don't have to chase them around. You're so lucky, you know, because once they're mobile, it's a different game. You're like a whole different set of rules. You're so... That's a classic. It's a classic there. Before you know it, you're trying to coach your kid. You know, you get home. And, Come on, buddy. You're getting Cheetos out and putting them on the floor just hoping they'll do something. It gets really sad at that point, actually. You've got to kind of back up and repent a little bit. I'm not saying I did that. I'm just saying. <laughs> it, it happens, I'm told. People are great. People are great at trying to be great. You wait until college football season comes around. It's almost here. You'll see the swagger. Gamecocks and Tiger fans, you watch them when they walk into church. There'll be orange and garnet ties left and right. People will be so fired up when their team wins. You wait till they lose, though. Our tables are often just like the disciples. Who will be the greatest? Jesus is speaking at this meal into that table. He's cutting at the heart of that table, and he's doing it with his actions. But we see some resistance, don't we? Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. There, there was silence in the room until, until Jesus reached Simon Peter. Uh, we, we, don't know, uh, we don't know where Peter was in the order that night. What we can reasonably discern is that he wasn't the first one in line, that he had seen this, this drama unfolding in front of him, and that he wasn't comfortable with what was taking place. His question, Lord, do you wash my feet, is almost a hostile question. It's expressing a level of indignation. He questions why Jesus was stooped so low as to serve him in this way. So Jesus, knowing that this was weighing on his disciples, even making them uncomfortable, he doesn't stop and explain it all. He doesn't say, okay, so this is what's happening. I'm going to wash your feet, and then this is what it means. He doesn't do that, does he? Rather, he tells Peter he isn't going to understand this entirely until a later time. What Jesus is doing here is teaching an acted parable. 
And so Peter understood the outward lesson of the parable. He fully understood the posture that Jesus was taking as a servant that was not lost on him at all. He got that. And that's why why he's so upset. He understood the outward part of the parable. But his eyes had not been opened, not yet, to the spiritual meaning of what Jesus was doing. And what Jesus was doing was giving them a dramatic portrait of his entire ministry. His entire ministry. In his book, Secrets of the Spirit, Ray Stedman says this, There can be little doubt that here Jesus was deliberately working out a parable for the instruction of his disciples. He was dramatizing for them the character of his ministry. He was showing them by this means what he had come into the world to do and what he would send them out to do. So he's giving them a bit of a history lesson. He's saying, remember, look back. But he's also giving them a bit of a vision for the future too. And this is what's coming. This is what's coming. He tells them down in verse 10, verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So there's no hypocrisy with Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't stand up on the mountain in some sort of Zeus-like character, looking down at the masses and telling them what to do. Jesus steps into the fray. He steps into the muck, into the mire, into the dust and the grime of human reality. And he says, do as I do. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Listen to me. Their feet were dirty. Like, like their feet were dirty. They were nasty. They were fil- Even if they had taken a shower before they left the house. Their feet were dirty by the time they got to where they are. You got in, I just think, you, most of us probably got, into a, got up this morning, took a shower, we hope, thank you, and, 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 and washed our feet and washed ourselves and, and got dressed and put on socks and shoes or maybe fancy sandals if you're a lady, and you came here in a car on a paved street and probably a low-emission vehicle, actually. I mean, like, we're, we're that type of people now. And nobody in this room wants to touch anybody's feet. There's nobody in here right now going, you know what I'd really like to do? Like to get a hold of that guy's feet. <laughs> not, and if you are, we probably ought to talk after. But that's, most people are not sitting here thinking, I can't wait to get a hold of somebody's feet. Because they've been in socks. They're sweaty. Nobody wants that. Jesus is teaching them an acted parable. He is he's saying, listen to me. This this is what you should do for one another. I need you to also paint another picture. These, these dirty feet. In the, in the scripture, we see Jesus reach down. Um, and, he, and he fills a basin and then he takes, he takes water in his hands. Hands that within 24 hours are going to have nails driven through them. And he takes that water and he wipes it on their feet. And then he takes this towel, this loincloth. And he wipes them clean with the towel that he's wearing. This is not a little thing. I know you might have done a youth group thing where somebody brought a bucket of water into the room and everybody took turns dipping their feet. This is different. This is heavy. This is a profound example of humility and it points all of them and us to the cross. This is what the Apostle Paul points us to in Philippians chapter 2 when he writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And listen to me, most people would tell you that this is a good thing. Most people are going to say being humble and serving one another and doing good things for one another, that's a good thing. We should do that. Most people are not going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan and, and celebrate the fools who walk by on the other side. Nobody's going, to make, nobody's going to glorify those people. They're all going to go, yes, this is how we should be. We should be the Good Samaritan. We should be the one who stops and helps. Now, they might not do that, but we'll say it's a good idea. Paul doesn't stop there, though. He doesn't stop with simply being a humble servant, and Jesus doesn't stop with being a humble servant either. He goes far beyond foot washing. In verse 8 of Philippians 2, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is no hypocrisy with Christ. He's not commanding us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. In fact, he's not asking to do anywhere close to what he did himself. One commentator points out the foot washing was shocking to Jesus' disciples, but not half as shocking as the notion of a Messiah who would die the hideous and shameful death of crucifixion, the death of the damned. These two events are together part of a singular piece. The the Messiah, the one who, who is to be exalted, the one who just days before this entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey with people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That Messiah... That Messiah is on a path to the cross, and that is the single greatest act of service the world will ever know. And that act, for the Christian, frees us. It motivates us. It even even demands of us a different type of love than the world knows. Later in John 13, Jesus is going to say these words, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. It's at that point that, again, the world stands up and says, Yes and Amen. We're, we love that. Our culture tells us to love one another, to coexist with one another. We got the bumper sticker and everything. You slap that on the back of your car and you love everybody. We're supposed to embrace one another. This isn't new or strange or even uncomfortable for the natural man. Our postmodern culture actually sort of demands it. But Jesus doesn't stop after saying to love one another. That is not the end of his message. Look at John 13, 34 and 35. Turn there with me. John 13, 34 and 35. Maybe on the same page. He says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Then he says, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now that's heavy because we know how Jesus loves us. His love is different. His love is strong. And so when we're talking about the love of Christ, when we're talking about the love of Jesus, we're talking about the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. We're talking about the love of Jesus who loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. We're talking about a sacrificial type of love. We're talking about a love that is, well, we're talking about a love that's patient. We're talking about a love that's kind. We're talking about a humble type of love that doesn't envy or boast. We're talking about a love that sets aside its own agenda for the sake of others. We're talking about a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We're talking about a never-ending, always and forever love. And I know this isn't a wedding, but we're talking about a 1 Corinthians 13 type of love. 
It's the type of love that we see in the upper room as Jesus washes his disciples' feet and the same love that ultimately led him to the cross. If this is how we're to love one another, if this is supposed to be the distinguishing mark of the church, Jesus says in 1335, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If this is how we're to love one another, Jesus says the world will notice. That's what he says. By this, all people, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says the world's going to notice that. That will be what sets us apart from the natural world. This will be what makes us unique. As we love one another in a self-sacrificing, never-ending Christ-like love, the world can't help but notice. And this means we don't do things out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. It means we give of our lives, we give of our time, our energy, our finances. It means we open our homes. You say, why? I just don't like having guests in my home. Okay. Okay. Good thing Jesus didn't have that same feeling about you. You say, well, my life is just way too busy. We don't have time for that. You don't know. We got sports practice. We've got drama team practice. We got, you think of anything. Somebody's got practice for it. Okay. Good thing Jesus didn't take that attitude towards his people. You say, well, what if I don't completely agree with what other people think? What if I just don't get along with the people around me? What if I don't like the people around me? I, I want to I, I be careful here, but not too careful. Jesus, I'm not going to be careful at all. Jesus washed the feet of Judas. Judas, the man who has already made plans to betray him for 30 measly pieces of silver. How are you supposed to wash the feet of your brother or sister in Christ if you won't even let them in the house? Every week, um, well, nearly every week, I don't want to make a false claim here. Nearly every week, we have the college students into our house for a community group. They come, they, they share a meal. Sometimes that meal's pretty ghetto. It's like, you know, a $5 hot and ready, but we split it up and pray that it'll multiply. Um, they share a meal, they sit around our table, they grab a seat in our living room, Honestly, it's the one time a week that people use our dining room. It's actually kind of cool. In that time, spills happen. I mean, we, we don't just give them water. They're allowed to have soda. You know, they're college students. Come on. Spills happen. Uh, dirty shoes happen. We, we factor the cost of carpet cleaning into our annual budget. Um, you, you, do that, you do that when you have 25 to 30 college students in your house every week. That, that's just part of it. They also play with our kids. They eat with our kids. Um, they tolerate our pathetic little wiener dog. Um, they see us tired. They see us when we're tired. They see us in our good moments. They see us in our good moments, and they see us in our not-so-great not so moments. Uh, they see Laurie and I when we have to discipline our children. But our kids have all these like surrogate aunts and uncles. And brothers and sisters, our lives are so blessed because we get to hear the victories, right? And our hearts break when we walk through the defeats. But this, this is the beauty of life in the community of the king as members of the body. Yes, we celebrate their acceptance to colleges that are 
maybe a little farther away than we'd like. But we also weep when we have to say goodbye. This is what Christ intends for his church. This is what Christ wants for his people. A gospel community is a group of people with a shared life, a life found in Christ, and a shared mission to herald the good news of salvation in Christ to the nations. It's a people who are willing to serve. And listen to me, like Peter, learn to be served. One of the biggest cultural struggles we have is people don't want to allow someone to help. First and foremost, it's a people who understand what Christ has done for us. How he has met our greatest need on the cross. And how he continues to wash our feet when we bring the dirt and the grime of sin on our feet into his house. And that's what presses us into service of one another. We follow the example of our Lord. We follow the one who did not come to be served, but to serve. We follow the one who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And all of that for the glory of God alone. This is how Christ loved the church. This is how he has called us to love one another in the community of the king. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you wouldn't let my emotions be a distraction here. I pray that your word would speak beyond what we've said this morning. I pray that as we go home, we'd reflect on what it means to wash each other's feet, what it means to open our doors, what it means to give of our lives, what it means to belong to one another. God, I pray that we'd wrestle with that. And I pray that if, if it's your will, that we, would, that we would find a place here where we can do that for each other. Lord, I thank you for the body of Christ here at St. Andrews. I thank you for the love that we have. Lord, I pray that you would expand that, that you would extend that, that you would stretch us beyond where we're comfortable. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.